Hi, I'm Helen and this is Why Mums Don't Jump. Busting taboos about leaks and lumps after childbirth. All the stuff that happens to your pelvic floor that no one ever talks about. Incontinence, prolapse, pelvic pain, problems that affect millions of women. One in three. I'm one of them. I have a prolapse. My pelvic organs fell out of place after the birth of my second child. And if you had told me back then that I'd be speaking about this stuff out loud, I would have told you to give your head a wobble. Hi, welcome back. Um, With everything that's happened lately, I think I forgot to tell you about something amazing that's been in development over the last six months or so. It started, as it so often does, with an email from a listener who said she was a lecturer at Falmouth University in Cornwall and would I be interested in being a practice client for her animation students? I said, yes, I very much would. And I went down to speak to them back in September about creating a short film based around the podcast. Now, quite honestly, I don't know what I was expecting, um, but the end result is so much more. They've used audio clips from the podcast and produced such a moving and powerful film taking what is, as we know, a really difficult subject matter and then creating something warm and vibrant and brilliant. Um, it's it's a minute and a half long. I can't do it justice here. But please do go and find it on my website or on social media because it's amazing. Trust me, you're going to love it. Massive thanks to Rosa Mulraney and all of the students of Falmouth. You should all be massively proud of yourselves. Um, thank you again. Today's episode picks up where we left off last week in conversation with the urogynecologist Dr Charlotte Marnie from St Mary's Hospital in Manchester. It's in two parts because I think it's really important and uh, it's accessible and that's hard to find and I didn't want to cut it short or to overwhelm. So please do listen to the previous episode first where we spoke about mesh, where we're at with that, about what happens during an assessment and what treatments and surgeries are available for stress incontinence as well as success rates for that and the importance of physiotherapy. This week, we discuss treatments for overactive bladder, which includes urge incontinence. We look at um, surgeries for prolapse and how to get the most out of your long-awaited appointment. Um, Here we go. Right, so we've covered three procedures for stress incontinence. Yes. And the other uh, kind of incontinence or the major kind is urge incontinence uh, yeah. or overactive bladder. Same thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm, so Not yes. quite the same thing? Yeah, pretty much. Kind so basically, of. the other bladder condition that a lot of women have is an overactive bladder and it's where your bladder's gone rogue and it does what it wants to do so <laughs> you, your bladder says i need a wee and your brain says okay but you know we're in the supermarket right now so don't go and you can almost hear your bladder going uh-huh, i'm gonna do it anyway <laughs> yeah. and then it just comes out and it is in some ways worse than stress incontinence because you can't control it at least mm. with stress incontinence you can stop doing all the activities that start it right mm. and it's awful because you have to limit your life loads but you can at least in some way stop whereas you know with overactive bladder you know you might be standing in the supermarket looking at the cereal doing the family shop and suddenly it just comes out and it can be big volume and you cannot stop it and there's a puddle on the floor right and it's mortifying so 
it is the needing to rush to the toilet for a wee and then also the incontinence bit is not being able to make it in time and it comes mm-hmm. out before you get there. And some women get a minute's warning, some women get two seconds. Right. You know, some women you put your hands under hot water or you stand in the shower and you leak mm-hmm. or you get your key in the door mm-hmm. and you start juggling. Yep. You know when you've been on a yep. long car journey? Yeah. It's that feeling mm-hmm. that every time you put the key in the door and yeah. it comes out as the key is turning in the lock. Um. So that is very different cause. So that's caused by your bladder muscle being really overactive. So we don't treat that with surgery. Okay. We treat that with cutting out things that annoy your bladder. Mm-hmm. Caffeine, sadly, for all the mums listening to the podcast, because <laughs> yeah. that's how we survive. Uh, fizzy pop, yeah. um, fizzy drink. So even, you know, beer. Unfortunately, it's the, it's the bubbles. The bladder does not like the bubbles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next thing we do is you see the nurses um, and they do kind of bladder training. So they train mm-hmm. your brain to teach your bladder who's boss again, basically. And there's all different techniques that they can teach you. And they'll teach you to sort of hold on for a second. Mm-hmm. And you build up all the way up to two hours. And it's amazing for the women who really engage with it. The, the impact that that simple thing can have is huge. It works really, really well. That's that's crazy. Amazing, that's isn't like, it? Yeah, yeah, that's really yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's to do with the neuro, the nerve pathways. Yeah. No one really understands how it works, mm-hmm. but why question it? Because it works, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. Then, if you're still struggling after that, there's medication we can try. But one family of the medicines can give you not, uh, not the nicest side effects: dry eyes, dry mouth, you get a bit okay. constipated. Mm-hmm. And the problem with the medication is it doesn't cure it. Right, so it's not like you know if you've got a chest infection and you get and it's bacterial and it's really bad. You've got pneumonia and the GP gives you antibiotics. Mm-hmm. It goes away. Yeah, that doesn't happen with an overactive bladder. Mm-hmm. We can manage the symptoms, but it's still there. So mm-hmm. the the medication is for life. And if it gives you really bad dry eyes for life, that's really annoying. Yeah, which is why we do the basics first again mm-hmm. because not only is anything I do after going to work better if we've got the bladder training and the kind of fluid adjusting right but also if it works with just those amazing because you've avoided having to take not the nicest medication forever yeah. yeah and then if that doesn't work there's another medicine and if that one doesn't work we do those bladder tests i talked about before just mm-hmm. to check there's nothing weird going on and you can empty a bladder normally mm-hmm um, and then after that, we offer people really cool things like Botox injections, but into their bladder. So again, like you get both, right. we get obviously we get all ideas from the face, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but because like you get Botox in the face, we can you can come and have it done in clinic, and our mm-hmm. nurses do it now. So mm-hmm. again, camera in through your water pipe with some bit of local anaesthetic, mm-hmm. couple of injections of Botox into your bladder muscle. You go for one wee and you go home. That's it. Yeah. But that's the one where the Botox wears off. So you have to keep having it every, some women it's every six months, some women it's every couple of years, but it's a long recurrent treatment. Um, But yeah, it's great. Works really, really well. Okay. Whereas the stress incontinence Botox, that's just a one-off, is it? The stress incontinence bulking, so the collagen stuff. Oh, that, one's collagen, one's, one's Botox. Botox. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. That's how it's yeah. easy to remember yeah, okay. the two. Is. One's a bit like collagen and one's yeah. actual Botox. Okay, so, right. The stress incontinence one, the bulking, the collagen type stuff, um, that is a one-off with maybe a top-up. That's it. Mm-hmm. The Botox is indefinitely, really. But okay. equally, you might get away with it for five years and not need one. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. 
Another one is uh, an acupuncture needle in the back of your ankle once a week for 12 weeks for about 30 minutes. And it runs I know about this. A previous guest told me uh, uh, it's called percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Amazing. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. Oh, good. That means my explanations, you know, fits with what she (laughs) happens. Good. Um, Yeah, so... We shorten it to PTLS because otherwise Mm -hmm. it's a massive mouthful. Um, The great thing about that is, again, it's really low risk, but it's not as successful. Um, For every three women, maybe one one of them needs something else. Okay. Um, And then the final one is uh, sacral neuromodulation, where you can get a little box implanted in, in your back. And it yes. puts, there's an electrode, a little wire that goes into your spine and it, it runs electrical signals permanently to this nerve in your spine that basically set, resets your bladder and controls it. It requires a couple of operations to fit and then to kind of as a tester to start with and then to fit it. And the other thing is it's you have to have the battery changed every 10 years, roughly, and it requires quite a lot of, uh, sort of appointments. Um, because they sometimes need to rejig the settings on the box. Um, I don't know if it's a Manchester thing, but a lot of our women certainly tend to choose Botox over that. Mm. Um, I think because it, it seems a lot more invasive. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's, that's another option. Other other areas, I think somewhere in Middlesbrough way, they have a lot of women who go for the sacral modulation instead mm-hmm. of Botox. So I think it sometimes it depends on your population and what yeah. they what And the if, vibe you, is. if you tried one and it didn't work, potentially you could have another in future? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. It's the same with all of the things we do. Mm-hmm. You know, with the stress incontinence operations as well, if you have one, it doesn't work, and you come back and you want something else, we can try another one. Yeah. 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 Um, so prolapse then. Okay, go on. Grill me about prolapse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know really. I mean, I, I, I actually, I actually have no clue what all the different operations are because, as I say, I'm sure it depends on you know what what's prolapsed and how bad it is, and yeah. again, what you want, right? Yeah, exactly. So it depends if you've got a prolapse of the front wall of the vagina, the back wall of the vagina, or the top, either your womb or the top of the vagina that's left after a hysterectomy, and. Mm-hmm. Depending on which bit's falling down or which combination is falling down, because it's usually not just one. Most of the time it's, you know, one and one of the others as well. Depends what combination of surgeries you get offered. So if you've got a prolapse of the front wall of the vagina and physio's not worked, because obviously we want to do our prehab and you want to explore non-surgery as much as possible as you can, then we have a chat. We could try a pessary and I know you've, talked about that before and had some brilliant people talk about all the really fancy different ranges Mm -hmm. of cool ones we've got and if none of that works then surgery so the surgery for a prolapse of the front wall of the vagina is we make a cut on the front wall of the vagina we push the bladder back up to kind of the level it should be and then we get this connective tissue that's just underneath the bladder and stitch that together and then trim any spare skin off and then close the skin back over it's a really relatively simple operation, to be honest. Like I said before, the main issue is managing things before and after to make mm-hmm. sure we've got everything addressed to reduce the chances of it coming back. Yeah. Um, 
And you can have it done under general anaesthetic or a spinal anaesthetic. So a bit like an epidural, you don't have to be asleep if you don't want to or if you've got heart problems and you're older and you're worried about having that type of anaesthetic. You don't need it for this. Um, At the moment, with us, you stay in one night, but there are places around the country that they're doing it as a day case operation. And I'm setting that up in the northwest as soon as I can get the bed, the overnight kind of bed stay to do that as potentially as a day case um, at one of our smaller hospitals as well. Um, mm-hmm. So that's quite exciting because, again, it just makes it more of an accessible operation for women. You yeah. Know? Um, if you've got a prolapse of the back wall of the vagina, we do exactly the same thing, but on the other side. So cut on the back wall, push the bowel back down, take some strong connective tissue, tie that together, all dissolvable stitches, so it's all your own body, mm-hmm. trim off any spare vaginal skin and close it back over. And then as part of that, we'll often neaten the vaginal entrance as well, what we call a perineurophy. So some women, particularly after childbirth, if you've had a tear and that it's healed, you still you can still feel like the vagina's a bit gaping. And it's basically because the muscles just at the front there haven't quite healed back together mm-hmm. in exactly the same spot. So we'll often as part of a posterior repair, just neaten that little entrance and tuck those together slightly. Not only because it helps with the posterior repair, but it also helps to kind of keep everything tucked inside and mm-hmm. it gives you that normal sensation back that you kind of, some women have lost when they have sex because of the gaping entrance. Um, so that's how, I mean, you've described it in quite a simple way. So that, <laughs> those are those two, the two sort of main options when it comes to prolapse then? No. So those okay. are the two main options. They are the only options for a front or a back wall prolapse. Right. Okay. The top is different. So if your womb is coming down, we can uh, remove your womb through the vagina, vaginal hysterectomy. Not like having it taken out through your tummy. Your recovery is much, much quicker. Once we've done that, if the, the top of the vagina that's left behind is falling down too, we'll put a stitch in that and hitch it up to the side of your tailbone to lift mm-hmm. it all off to one side. Called a sacrospinous fixation. Um, really successful, nice little operation, especially if you're somebody who's having problems with bleeding or you've got a family history of womb cancer and actually just like your womb out as well to reduce that risk. Or you just like that idea of that surgery, you know? Um, the next one of your womb is coming down is I can put a stitch in the neck of your womb, your cervix, and use that to hitch that up to your tailbone so it's basically a bit like the other one we do at the top of the vagina but this time around you keep your womb it's really useful for women who like the idea of keeping their womb for cultural or personal reasons in our experience in our unit we don't offer it anymore to women who are still having periods because we had a lot of issues with women who were having periods every month when your womb swells when you're due on it will pull where the dissolvable stitch was and the scar now is, yeah. and it would cause pain. So mm-hmm. we don't do it because actually it's just, there are other options. Mm-hmm. So we don't, we try and uh, normally we say that to women generally, you know, we've had to take a lot of these down. It's probably not a good idea. Um, and then the final one is a laparoscopic sacrohysteropexy. So we love operations that sound like a big mouthful, yeah. as you can tell. And they all sound um, quite similar as well, just to be yeah. extra confusing. Yeah. Oh, totally, yeah. You yeah. Should, the junior doctors struggle, bless them, because yeah. it's just all a big mishmash. So for that one, it's keyhole surgery again, camera in through your belly button, a couple of little one-centimetre cuts in your tummy. Um, and what we do is we place mesh, having talked about mesh earlier, we are still allowed to put it in through the tummy. So mesh that goes in through the vagina 
is a no-no. And that's definitely known to cause quite nasty complications for women. As far as we're aware, mesh that goes in through your tummy is a lot safer. And that's what the evidence so far has shown. There is still a risk that it can wiggle its way through into your bladder, your bowel. All right. And we have seen that. Um, And we in my centre certainly take those out. Although most of the time, that's when they've been put in with a permanent stitch, not a dissolvable stitch. Um, But equally, this operation, we go in the keyhole, we put the mesh around the womb and we use that and lift that up and basically staple it off to the side of your lower spine. Some women really like it because it means that it's stronger than their natural tissue. Some women have got very, very stretchy natural tissue and they want something stronger than themselves. You know, as I said before, it's all about choice. You know, they may have read everything about mesh and the women with mesh complications might be listening to this going, oh my God, what are they doing? That's a crazy Mm -hmm. choice. Mm -hmm. But it's her choice and that's what matters. So... Some women like the idea because of that. Other women like the idea because they really want to keep their womb for, again, cultural or personal reasons, and they're still having periods. Mm. Very occasionally women want to do it because they want to keep their womb and their fertility. So we counsel women saying that it's as far as we don't know the impact of a, a pregnancy on this, right? And if you give birth, you have to give birth by cesarean because the baby can't get past the mesh, the netting that's there. There are cases reported where women have successfully got pregnant, carried a baby and delivered a perfectly healthy baby by cesarean. Mm -hmm. As far as we're aware, there are still no cases reported where it's caused any problems. Mm -hmm. But we don't know. So we just say we don't know. But for some women who want to maybe keep that as an option, that's there. That being said, in the Northwest, we don't do so many of them. Again, our women tend to prefer other operations. Mm -hmm. But there are areas down south, for example, Oxfordshire, women are still very keen on mesh in Mm -hmm. the Oxford region, and they tend to be quite keen on that operation. So again, it's about your area, it's about what your women want, and it's about giving them that choice and that information, and they choose. Mm -hmm. Most of my ladies in clinic, I give them all three options. Um... If they're still having periods, I tell them the middle option, hitching the cervix is not appropriate. And then they'll normally give me quite a strong reaction to mesh. Either they love it or they hate it. It's a bit Marmite, you know, yeah, yeah. which makes it quite easy in terms of decision. So that's kind of if your womb is coming down. If you've already had a hysterectomy in the past and the top of your vagina is falling down, called a vault, vaginal vault prolapse. So that's what we call the top of the vagina that's left behind. We call it the vaginal vault If that is falling down, your surgery options are hitching that up to your tailbone using dissolvable stitches, exactly like we'd do after the vaginal hysterectomy, but we just do that because you've already had your womb out, Um, or a mesh option. So laparoscopic sacrocolpopexy, another wonderfully easy phrase to say. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Keyhole surgery again, and this time around we put the plastic netting over the top of the vagina that's left behind after the hysterectomy. And we lift that up and staple it to the side of the spine and cover the mesh over with your natural tissue. Okay. Um, choices for that are a little bit different. So every woman gets given the options either way. Some women are not fit for the keyhole surgery operation because of their chest. Some women have already had the sacrospinous fixation before and it's failed. And that's why they're then in a position where they're considering the mesh because they've tried everything else and nothing's working. And they've tried the pessaries and they're all falling out. And now they're walking around sat on what feels like a plum, a very mm-hmm. uncomfortable plum or an orange. And it starts rubbing on their underwear. 
you know, you can get ulcers in the skin. It can be really, really uncomfortable and unpleasant for those women. So that's why they might choose that mesh operation. And again, that's why we give them all the choice. You know, it's up to you what you want. And is it possible to say with with all of these, again, success rates and and longevity, does it vary or how how do they do? It varies to some degree. If we're completely honest, we don't totally know yet. There was a big study a number of years ago comparing all of them. The data is coming out, as far as we know, to some degree. They're all pretty much of a muchness, relatively. And certainly for us in the kind of mesh complication era, as I say, for most of our women, it's usually quite a strong response either way. You know, either they love it or they hate it. And so we're always guided by them and what they want to do um, and take it from there. Yeah. But you could hope to come out of any of these surgeries. You could have a, a reasonable hope that you'll be in a better position than you were when you went in. Yes. And that it will last for maybe 10 or more years. No. So prolapse surgery is different. Prolapse surgery can fail much sooner and it can last much longer. So one in three women with prolapse who have prolapse surgery, it will come back. And one in 10 women need another operation or end up having another operation. So with prolapse surgery especially, I really use the whole wrinkle scenario because Mm -hmm. it helps you to get your head around it. You know, especially if you've done some physio, you don't like the idea of pessaries or you're using a pessary, but you think you might want surgery because you think surgery is permanent. Actually, to have that discussion with someone like me, have all the choices and go, but look, actually, there's no guarantee surgery will last forever. Um, It influences your decision making. You know, It's important to hear that, definitely. Yeah, and I think the other thing isn't, and certainly in my unit, every woman I see for incontinence or prolapse, one of the treatment options is do nothing. You can come and have a massive chat with me as many times as you want and then decide, you know what, actually, I don't think I want to do anything. And that's okay. You are under no pressure to choose a treatment option. Doing nothing is an, is an acceptable treatment because it's you, it's your body. And I, you know, we there are women out there who have, a prolapse coming down to kind of their mid-thigh, do you know, and actually they don't want surgery and they manage it with some estrogen cream to keep the skin nice and strong and that's them and that's just what they do and they are quite happy and that is absolutely okay, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's one of the biggest key things about Eurogyne that I spend my life trying to get across is it's you, it's your choice, it's what you want. Here's the information, I am just here to- it kind of is your conduit, really, to yeah. give you everything that you need to know and empower you to mm. make the choice for yourself. You're, you know, women are independent these days. We all know we're highly educated. We know what we're doing. We can make our own choices, and we should. It's it's good good to hear that, and I'm sure, like, um, well, I I have actually sat in your office, so I know <laughs> I know this to be true. But um, I think it, it's unfortunately that it takes so long for so many people to get there, and I think that's part of the thing is like, like when you end up that you do get your appointment and you get there. My my brains are generally going. I've got to say everything in seven minutes. I'm going to get it all out. Like, have you got any advice for women who've perhaps waited, you know, months and months and months to, to see you? How can they get the most out of that appointment? Yeah, it's a really good question. You're full of them, Helen. Obviously, you can tell you've been doing this a while. Um, honestly, I would say let your doctor guide you. I guide my patients and I can, you know, we do this a lot. I, 
I've done three all-day clinics in the last five days and seen 30 patients to help with the waiting list. You know, we know, we see ladies like yourself all the time. We can tell if you're nervous. We can tell if you just need to get it all out and we'll just sit and listen and let you get it all off and then we'll start again and ask you our questions. But equally, be happy to be guided by us in terms of your symptoms. Think of what's bothering you before you get to see us. That's always really, really helpful. But we're used to picking out those little phrases and if we ask you for to do the questionnaire or do a bladder diary before you come try and do one it speeds up and it really makes a difference in terms of being able to jump to the next treatment step rather than having to wait for that investigation for those listening a bladder diary is basically where you record how much you drink and how much you wee for three days it's it's a faff it's a lot of work but it's the most helpful test we have to tell us kind of, you know, how your bladder is in everyday life. Because when you come and see us, it's 30 minutes in an office, an examination in hardly the most relaxing environment. And actually, it's probably not going to be the best representation of what you feel when you're out and about. So that diary gives us a much better picture of how your bladder's behaving. But no, just come, be guided by us. And the only other thing I would say for anybody listening is, if you struggle with examinations for whatever reason, just mention it. We understand. We see and examine a lot of women and that's okay. And if you need us to take a little bit longer, just let us know. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, I think really that's really is. good advice. And I guess just just know as well that just the fact of being there doesn't mean you're on a fast track to surgery. Completely. As you've explained. Yeah. You can prescribe all of the other stuff and none of the surgery yeah. if, if that's the right thing for that woman. Exactly. Most of what yeah. I do isn't surgery. You know, most of what I do is all of the other stuff. That's why it's fun. It's because I get to do everything, yeah. you know. Um, and a lot of the other stuff works unbelievably well. Um, the physios, especially, as you know, they're amazing. You mm. know, their work that they do and they give you this personalised exercise plan. It's very different to telling yourself you've done the exercises yourself at home for however many years. It's not the same. It's just they're, they're, they're amazing. So don't yeah. discount them, you know? Yeah. I have kept you for far too long. I think <laughs> I'm going to have to split this into two episodes. <laughs> Serious. Which is not a bad thing because I think sometimes it's just good to be, you know, meticulous about these things because where can we... This is the problem. You know, women find themselves with these conditions that they've never heard of, had no idea about, and then cannot find, like, reliable information mm. and sensible advice. Mm. You get lost on the Dr. Google down rabbit holes and forums and... Um, so, yeah, so I think it will be really useful. I mean, I don't know if you have any final thoughts or advice for women who find themselves in this boat, especially given that, as we've said, it could take months or even years before they would get to see someone like you. Yeah, so I train quite a lot of GP um, colleagues who are sort of training to be GPs and I set up a training clinic because I realised a lot of women, exactly as you say, are waiting ages to see me. And actually my brilliant GP colleagues, when they're not totally overrun with the catch-up from COVID, can... Um, you know, refer people on for physio locally. They can refer you on for bladder retraining with the nurse, with the local community continence service. And actually, their waiting time is much shorter than mine. And you could have done all of the basics with them before you come to me. And suddenly, it's so much quicker and a much smoother process for you. But final thought I would say is if it bothers you, don't suffer in silence. We are here. We're busy. You know, there's a reason we're busy. One in three women struggle with one of these things in their life. 
you know, talk to your friends, but do go see your GP, come see us. We're always happy to even just run through the options and decide to do nothing. That's okay. That's so reassuring. Thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure. I know that conversation has already been really useful because you messaged me last week about it. Um, thank you again to Dr. Charlotte Marnie. I'm not a medical expert. This is not intended as medical advice, so please do seek out your own professional help. During this episode, we mentioned PTNS as a treatment. To find out more about that, you can listen back to Sarah's story from season three. And the other episode to flag uh, is pelvic floor surgery with the consultant colorectal surgeon, Julie Cornish, which is about colorectal services, where you might be referred if your symptoms affect the bowel. You've been listening to Why Mums Don't Jump with me, Helen Ledwick. You can find me on socials at whymumsdontjump or online at whymumsdontjump.com. The book is called Why Mums Don't Jump, Ending the Pelvic Floor Taboo, and it's available to buy now. See you next week.